Hello and welcome to an undisclosed location. This is Murder Incorporated. I am Buddy. And I am Harley. I know you think Canada is all maple syrup and hockey fans, but this story will change your mind. What about the moose? It wasn't the moose this time. It was evil Peter Woodcock. <laughs> I can't do this, man. Perfect. No, I'll just cut this out. Perfect. Perfect. I'm serious. I can't do this. Cracked out talking about. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. But I just keep going. Perfect. <laughs> Here's Harley to tell you more. Peter Woodcock. This is no joking matter. This is not funny. No. <laughs> We're not racist against Canadians. That was just all a joke. We love all our Canadian fans, yes. That's not what was written down for Buddy. I don't know where it would be. Yeah. <laughs> Harley wrote it all just so you know. <laughs> Peter Woodcock was born in Peterborough, Ontario, to a 17-year-old factory worker, Wyda Woodcock. But she gave him for adoption only after a month. Oh, well. Okay. The adoption agency records report that newborn Peter showed feeding problems and he cried constantly. Like uh, he was I wonder just, why. Yeah. I mean, being away from your mother after only a month old is going to take it out on you, you know? Yeah, exactly. And as an infant, he stayed in various foster homes. So they wouldn't want you to bond with these mothers. So they would move you around from foster home to foster home. Yeah. Bonding is bad for a baby, right? I don't know where they got this from. <laughs> like, I don't know where they got this from. So he just never had that, like, loving connection. Okay. Right from the get-go. You know what I mean? This kid's only a month old. This is truly tragic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, after his first birthday, he became terrified of anybody approaching him. Oh, really? Yeah, and his speech was incoherent. It was like, he's like an animal. You know what I mean? Like, he yeah. just, it's so sad. You know, he didn't have a chance at all from okay. the beginning. Mm-hmm. There's a strange whining animal noises. That's how he talked. Huh. He was also physically abused by at least one of his foster parents. Okay. With two-year-old Woodcock having to be given medical treatment for an injured neck after receiving a beating. Oh, jeez. Yeah. But he was finally placed into a stable home at the age of three. Okay. And these were good foster parents. Mm-hmm. Frank and Susan Maynard. They were an upper-class family, and they had another son. And they truly tried everything with Peter. Yeah, sounds like a lot of damage was already done, though. Yeah, but the damage had been done, exactly. Yeah. So Susan Maynard, who was described as a forceful woman with an exaggerated sense of propriety, and I have no idea what that means, but that was just a quote. I guess she was a strong woman who had a lot of will to give this kid what he needed. Yeah, back then, if you were a, you know, this is 1945, 1940, uh, yeah, so something. You know, back then, they're like, women are not supposed to think. And do things, you yeah. know, so that's, yeah. they, they, tell, they talked about women. Mm-hmm. It was right after the war. Mm-hmm. You know, the world was very different back then. She became strongly attached to this child, right? She loved him right from the beginning. Okay. By the age of five, Woodcock was socially maladjusted, and he was bullied constantly. Mm. He just could not, like in school, he did great. He was very, very smart. Okay. And he was into, like, higher literature and into opera and stuff like that. Like, he was a very smart kid, huh. you know. But when it came to connections with people, it just didn't, it didn't click in his head yeah, whatsoever. that social connection that Not at most, all. most kids have, yeah, okay. So Frank and Susan Maynard would regularly bring him to the hospital for sick children. That's what it was called. Okay. Where Woodcock received extensive treatment. 
There was a report on him at the time that read like this. Slight in build, neat in appearance, eyes bright and wide open. Worried facial expression, sometimes screwing up of eyes. He walks briskly and erect, moves rapidly, darts ahead. Interesting and questioning constantly in conversation. He attributes his wandering to feeling so nervous that he just has to get away. So he would wander around town constantly. Mm-hmm. In some ways, Peter has little capacity for self-control. He appears to act out almost everything he thinks and demonstrates excessive affection for his foster mother. Okay. So he at least bonded with her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she, he was like the first person that really cared for him and like yeah. looked out for him. So he hated other children, though. Okay. He resented the fact that they could connect with each other and he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I mean, being bullied constantly—that's what it does. You know, yeah. it makes you just feel so alone. And he would attack other children. He would physically attack them. But it's like I don't even blame—I don't even blame this kid. He had no chance. I mean, this is the one story where I really believe like he was just made into this psychopath right from the beginning. Yeah, it seems like he—he kind of got stuck into this position that, and it just keep so far. It kept progressing throughout his life. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Peter had no friends, obviously. He would play with younger children, like very younger children sometimes. Okay. But with children his age, he just couldn't connect with them at all. He would tell them like crazy stories about stuff and like just lie completely, you know. They just, he didn't connect whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And he was not very good at hiding his violent tendencies. He was overheard at the Canadian National Exhibition saying that he wished someone would drop a bomb and kill all the children. Oh, wow. (laughs) So... He was sent to a school for emotionally disturbed children in Kingston, Ontario. He began acting now on his strong sexual urges for children, with Woodcock stating that here he had consexual intercourse with a 12-year-old girl when he was 13. Okay. When he turned 15, he was discharged from the school and returned to live with his foster parents, but was soon re-enrolled at his original private school, where he again failed to connect with anybody. At the age of 16, he left the private school again and was sent to a public high school. She thought maybe he would mix with those people better than, you know, the uppity people at the private school. Yeah, yeah. Let me guess, he got bullied there. Yes, the children from the neighborhood instantly recognized him and resumed the bullying. So he transferred to a private high school six weeks later. While kids his age, again, just shunned him completely. His teachers remember him as a very bright student who excelled in science, history, and English. And he was very bright. He'd get 100 on his tests all the time. Mm-hmm. And Peter Woodcock's prized possession now, this is important, was a red and white bike. A Schwinn, I think it was. A Schwinn, huh? Yeah. And he satisfied his continuing compulsion to wander. Okay. Just ride around town all the time. Even in the wintertime, he'd be riding his bike. Okay. So he was obsessed. And he evolved this fantasy, okay, where he'd let a gang of 500 invisible boys on bikes. And they were called the Winchester Heist Gang. So he would tell his parents about this, that mm-hmm. I have this game. It's not just me out there. I have 500 friends on the bikes. So so he had this uh, this imaginary, he basically had imaginary friends, and that was his friends, essentially, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And they thought, well, you know, it is what it is. But they didn't know that he was riding around raping children. Yeah. He was constantly finding kids to victimize. Oh, jeez. Okay. So there was many more victims other than just the ones that died. On September 15, 1956, 17-year-old Woodcock was riding his bike around the grounds of Exhibition Place when he met 7-year-old Wayne Millette. Okay. He lured the boy out of sight and then proceeded to strangle him to death. 
Mullet's body was found in the early hours of September 16th. It appeared that his clothing had been removed and he had been then redressed. His face was pushed into the dirt and two bite marks were found on his body. Huh. One on the boy's calf and one on the buttock. There was no evidence of rape, however. But pennies were found scattered around the body. Really? And a pile of crap <laughs> was found next to his body. So he just took a dump on him? Next to him. Yeah. Next to him. <laughs> okay. And this is really tragic. So the Toronto police initially arrested and interrogated another boy, Ron Maffat. Oh, really? Yeah. So through relentless questioning, they got a confession out of this 14-year-old boy. So so the boy confessed to the murder? Yeah, they just kept at him and kept at him oh and kept at him. Oh, God. And this was during a time where, like, 25% of all confessions were false confessions. Yeah. It was huge. This is before oh. we knew anything. They got their eyes on you, and you're done. Yeah. So to say this confession was dubious, you know what I mean, is understating yeah. it. Right, right. They walked this boy right into a trap, and he couldn't find his way out of it. Mm-hmm. And there was witnesses, okay, that clearly placed him in a movie theater before and after the murder of Wayne Millat. And they still got the confession. He was, yeah, they had the confession. Mm-hmm. So they walked him through it. They said, oh, so this is where you did it, right? This is how you did it, right? It was like that. And he was 14. Yeah. So he wasn't even legal age to, well, back then it probably wasn't the same rule. You're allowed but. to, yeah, you're allowed to interrogate a minor. So he was found guilty and sentenced to youth detention. Really? So oh. even after the police acknowledged that there was a serial predator in Toronto, Mathat was not released. But it's just nuts. So they just screwed up this boy for no reason. Yeah. Wow. So they, there's two lives around. Exactly. However, when notes were shared between forces, Woodcock was finally arrested. After his conviction, Woodcock was called as a defense witness for Mafat. The wrongful murder charge stayed in 1957, and he was released from custody. Okay. On October 6th, 1956, Woodcock was riding his twin around Cabbage Town when he picked up nine-year-old Gary Morris. Oh, jeez. He then drove the boy to Cherry Beach, where he strangled him and beat him to death. Oh, my God. With a coroner later determining that Morris had died from a ruptured liver. So he gave, was just stomping on his Wow, body. yeah. A ruptured liver? He's literally just on the ground, and he's jumping on him. God. It's horrible. A little nine-year-old. <laughs> Morris's body was found bite marks on his throat, and this time paper clips seemed to have been ritualistically sprinkled near the corpse. What is up with this? Again, the clothing had been removed, and then he'd been redressed. I don't uh-huh. know how they tell that, but... Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. I don't know how they tell I couldn't find it. Yeah. So, January 19th, 1957, Woodcock was again riding his bike around, looking for somebody to victimize, and he found four-year-old Carol Voice. Four-year-old? Um. Oh, he offered her a ride on his bike, and then he drove her under the Bloy Viaduct and murdered her. When she was found, her clothes had been pulled off, it appeared that she had been choked into unconsciousness, okay, and then sexually molested, and her death was caused by a tree branch being forcibly inserted into her vagina. Oh, my God. That's what killed this four-year-old. Oh. This is horrible. So, witnesses saw a teenager cycling away from Carol Voice's crime scene, and there was a very accurate sketch made. It looked exactly like Peter Woodcock. Okay. And this... Sketch ran on the front page of the Toronto Star. Mm-hmm. And it finally led to Woodcock's arrest on January 21st, 1957. Mm-hmm. And he confessed to all the murders. 
Okay. He recalled upon his arrest, he, I feared that my mother would find out. Mother was my biggest fear. I didn't know if the police would let her hurt me. So he thought that his mother was going to hate him. Yeah. That's what he was so scared of. He didn't care about himself. Uh-huh. He just didn't want his mother to be upset with him. And the police convinced him she would not be upset with him to confess. And so he did. Okay. So he was not only tried for the murder of Carol Voice on April 11, 1957. He only had a four-day trial. He was found not guilty because of insanity. Really? And was sent to Oak Ridge Division of the Maximum Security Pentecostine Mental Health Center in Pentecostine, Ontario. Hmm. Probably not how you pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's a interesting name. So. Yeah. so while in prison, this is crazy. Woodcock was diagnosed as a psychopath, which he was. Mm-hmm. And he underwent various forms of psychiatric therapy, including, at the time, which was popular, LSD treatments. Interesting. Yeah, that's going to help him. Yeah. He was also given other personality-breaking drugs. Scopolamine, sodium amytal, methadrine, and dexamil. He was subjected to dyads, a personality-breaking therapy in which, this is crazy, inmates challenged each other's belief systems. Really? Yeah, I've heard of this before. Interesting, okay. Which inmates referred to as the 100-day Hayden. Dyads were developed in the 1950s and 60s by a Harvard psychologist and former CIA interrogator. Okay. You know who else went through these? Who's that? The Unabomber. <laughs> At Harvard, okay. you went through the same things, and then ended up being the Unabomber. Hmm, these are working great. Yeah. So he did not respond well to these treatments, to say I the least. Guess not. I'm going to say they're outlawed now. <laughs> yeah. So these were not helping him. Let's just say that. Okay. They were not helping him. No. These are making things worse for him. Mm-hmm. And he was engaging in sexual acts, and he exploited. He was smart, so he would exploit his fellow inmates. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's in there with yeah. like people that are crazy. He's crazy. Don't get me wrong. He's Psychopath. Yeah, but he's got a he's got to have a huge IQ. I mean, he's yeah, a he's smart, smart guy. Yeah, and so he's able to manipulate these other patients. Yeah, and he convinced inmates that he had contact with an imaginary gang called the Brotherhood on the outside. <laughs> okay, and that to be initiated, inmates had to perform oral sex on him and bring him <laughs> gifts of cigarettes. Oh, jeez! So he's like running the show. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, he's probably loving it, living he's it. A up true in there. psychopath. You know what I mean? This is yeah. exactly what I'm saying. Like he was born and bred. To be a psychopath. Like, he yeah. had no chance of whatsoever. Yeah. Like when you're a baby and then you're not getting any love on that time that you need that connection with a mother yeah. or somebody, you're just being passed around to home and home yeah, and abused nurture, and neglected. That nurture says something. You know? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. I mean, in this case, I truly believe he just had no chance. Yeah, I agree. So he was eventually re- <laughs> transferred to a less restrictive institution. Well, yeah, he probably talked his way right into it. Yeah. Reminds me of Ed Kemper. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking the same thing. And he ultimately arrived at Brockville Psychiatric Hospital. Here, the staff indulged his passion for trains by taking him to Smith Falls, a railway museum, and even mm. took him to see Silence of the Lambs. Oh, wow. They, they treated him real nice, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, jeez. And then he changed his name to David Michael Kruger. Hmm. Yeah. And he rekindled the relationship with Bruce Hamill, an Ottawa killer who had been released from Oak Ridge. And now he's working as security guard there. At the Ottawa Courthouse. So they got a killer working a security guard. Yeah, he's he's good now, though. He got his treatment. He's good now. Oh, he's, 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 he's a good killer. Yeah. Yeah. He's completely sane. Okay. So Kruger convinced Hamill an alien brotherhood would solve his problems if he helped kill another Brockville inmate, Dennis Kirk. Oh, jeez. So he told him the aliens, if you kill him, they will come for you. They're going to take us both. So on July 13th, 1991, Bruce Hamill went to a hardware store. 
He bought a plumber's wrench. Wait, hatchet. Na- you said 1991? Yeah. I thought this was in the 40s. Yeah, this is way later. He went to jail when he was 17. This is like when he was like 50. Still the math in my head. That seems like he's got to be super old. Yeah, he is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> so, so he bought a plumber's wrench, a hatchet, knives, and a sleeping bag. And then went to Brockville Hospital and signed out the 52-year-old Cougar on his first publicly escorted day pass. Kruger being Peter Woodcock. Mm-hmm. Within the first hour of his first unsupervised visit in 34 years, Kruger arranged to meet Dennis Kerr in the woods. When Dennis Kerr arrived, Woodcock struck him in the head with a pipe wrench and <laughs> continued to beat him into unconsciousness. And then, Kruger and Hamill then seized the hatchet and knife they had hidden in the bushes while waiting for Kerr's arrival, hacked and stabbed at him, wow. mutilating his body while he's alive, nearly severing his head, and then sodomized the dead corpse. Woodcock then left the scene, walked to a police station about two miles away, and turned himself in immediately. He just wanted to get one last kill in, huh? It's so weird, yeah. So he just killed that guy, mutilated his body, raped him, and then just turned himself in, walked in calm, told him what happened. Wow. And he also told him he had an accomplice that's sleeping in the woods waiting for aliens. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's thinking he's going to wake up and the aliens are coming down to help him, okay? He's going to see flashing lights and be like, they're here, and then realize they're cops. Yeah, he's like... (laughs) Very surprised when the police came. Yeah. Okay. So the murder generator corners that inquest and many calls for revamping the system that determines whether mentally ill offenders are well enough to be released. Woodcock was taken back to Penetang, where he spent the final 18 years of his life. In his later years, he was a frail-looking man, like not good-looking like he was when he was younger. He was good-looking when he was younger, but not mm-hmm. when he's older. Mm-hmm. He just loved watching the news and listening to the radio. He made a quiet life for himself inside the barred doors and double locks of Penetang Institution. He had no family, and his death was reported to by another serial killer. <laughs> so that is the story of Peter Woodcock, or as he was known at the end, David Kruger. The man who never had a chance and never gave those poor kids a chance either. I mean, he had no chance. Literally, if you wanted to make a serial killer, this yeah. is what you would do. Yeah. yeah, the making of a serial killer. Isn't that a show? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> making a murder. Yeah, that's what it is, yeah. I truly believe he just did have no chance. No, he didn't. He is sad to say, but I just I just don't see like an out for this kid where it couldn't have ended like other people's deaths. Yeah, and he was too smart for his own good, you know? Yeah. But, but to do what he did is just horrific, you know? Have you ever heard of somebody getting out on a day pass? Only in Canada, you get out on a day <laughs> pass and then hatch somebody to death. Yeah, I mean... I love Canada, don't get me wrong. I yeah, really do, but like, me? in yeah. America, this guy would have been freaking locked yeah. up forever. Yeah, there, there's no way he would have gotten... There'd be no day passes. I mean, our prison stuff. system's super messed up, but that ain't happening in America. <laughs> no, not even back then, I don't think. No. I mean, don't get me wrong, people have gotten out and killed. Oh, yeah. Plenty. Oh, yeah. But this is just such an odd situation where he talks to this guy that's in there for murder himself. Yeah. Ended up being a security guard. Yeah. And talks him into murdering somebody with him because yeah, the aliens will come down if he kills him. That's crazy. That, uh, Can you that, imagine if I came here to do the podcast? I'm like, buddy, we're going to murder this guy. And the aliens are going to come down and they'll come and get us. All we got to do is kill this guy. They will? Yes. All we have to do is hatchet your neighbor to death. No. Yes. And then sodomize his body. Really? That's all the aliens want. Really? Just take a nap after. Don't worry. The cops are not coming. <laughs> we're not really going to do that. No, no. <laughs> That's if you're listening, it's okay, neighbor. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Every time you're out there with an axe, they're going to be like, "Get the kids inside." Yeah. Lock all the doors. Lock all the doors. 
<laughs> Great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think, buddy, about that kiss? Uh, I, I think I said it. I think you said it originally, and this this guy had no chance. Um, you really he he didn't have from right from the beginning when you when the child really needs bonding. They didn't have he didn't have any bonding. No, he had no chance. And I mean. Like I said, he was too smart for his own good, and he was bullied his whole life. He just found whatever he needed in killing people. Yeah, it's true. It's true as that. And he, I just can't believe they got out to do one last kill. It just that's when I heard the story. That's what made me be mind. like, "Oh, I got to do this." I've yeah. never heard of this, you know. And yeah. like, I was just looking up Canadian killers, and then I seen Canada's youngest serial killer. Yeah, I'm like, I got to do this guy. Yeah, this is crazy. So, like Buddy said in the beginning, Canada's not all maple syrup and hockey fans. There's some crazy crap going on up there. Yes, there is. Like, there is everywhere. And it's not the moose, either. It's not the moose, eh? <laughs> we just kidding. We love our Canadian listeners. We do. We appreciate you all. And uh, we're just joking around. Yep. You know what? If anybody from Canada wants to rate and review us, and then, what, Buddy? Well, you need to send us your address to Murder Incorporated Pod. At gmail.com. Yes, that is correct. And we'll send you a cool pen and a sticker. Yes. And uh, if you want to look, find us on YouTube, we put our videos up on YouTube every episode. Yep. And before the episode, we make a video and do reviews. Yes, we do. We're also uh, doing some comments. We're reading some comments. So whether yeah. they're bad or good, hopefully they're all good. And uh, we're sending those stickers out to those who comment. Yes. And rate and review us. We've sent out quite a few already. I yes, sent out more today. Awesome. They'll be coming. Check your mailboxes. We really appreciate every listener that we have. Yes, we do. You know, the podcast is getting bigger and hopefully better. You know, we really work hard at trying to put out a good product for you guys because I listen to a lot of podcasts. So I, I know, yeah. like for the true crime fan, I hope that this is a good podcast for you. I really do. So do I. Absolutely. This is our passion and we love doing it. And we really appreciate all of you. You know, I really appreciate that I get to do as a buddy. He's my best friend. Yep. And this is amazing. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. And we'll end it with that. Right, buddy? Yes. Yes. All right. See you later, alligator. After a while, crocodile. Hi, welcome to The Jury Room, a true crime podcast. My name is Kevin, and I will be your host on this journey. We will be covering some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever be committed against humanity. We will be covering cannibalistic serial killers, decades-old unsolved mysteries, cold cases, missing person cases, and everything in between. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Please make sure you go subscribe and leave a review.